friends. Greg Kokel here at Stand to Reason. I thank you for joining me today. I look forward to chatting in one way or another with you. Uh, we have uh, actually some caller on board right out of the gate, and we've got a whole bunch of open mic calls to fall back on here. And so um, I'm looking forward to the challenge of the challenges that you offer me and hope it will be productive for you. We call it Stand to Reason because my goal is to stand to reason for classical Christianity and classical Christianity, uh, classical Christianity and classical Christian values, which is one thing I'm going to start out with here in just a moment. But uh, I like to call it Christianity worth thinking about. It's amazing how many folk, especially when you read online uh, blogs or uh, see memes or TikToks or whatever, how many people think that there's nothing worth thinking about with regarding Christianity, uh, that is, it's not a thoughtful religion. And the irony is, I, I have somewhere, <laughs> what, 11 volume set of Copleston's history of philosophy going from the ancients all the way to the modern era. And it's classical work. In other words, it's a standard thing. If you're in philosophy, if you study that, this is this is uh, required reading, or at least you need to have it on your bookshelf. There are a lot of volumes there. But after the time of Christ, virtually every single philosopher in that history of philosophy up until about the 19th century was a biblical theist. In other words, the greatest thinkers of Western civilization were Christians and uh, understood the world the way the Bible describes it, and uh, also were of the conviction that the Scripture adequately and accurately describes the world as it really is. So just that's part of why we're here. Christianity, we're thinking about stand to reason. Now, there's something, though, that I encountered recently, a couple days ago, that, that doesn't stand to my reason at all. I had a conversation with someone who was involved in the local, what we used to call CPCs, which is a crisis pregnancy center. In fact, it was a CPC where I met my wife. So I was in Conejo Valley. Actually, I lived in the West End, what we call South Bay, actually, the area of the Los Angeles um, the in the Los Angeles area, called the South Bay, where I lived, Redondo Beach. And uh, my wife was about an hour away where we live now, and she was employed by a CPC who had asked me in 1992 <laughs> uh, to do their banquet, to be the featured speaker at their fundraising banquet. I've done that many, many, many times since then, but uh, uh, there goal was to provide services for women uh, who decide to carry their children, and especially to let people know, women know, that if they are pregnant in an unwanted pregnancy, there are other alternatives than abortion. And so the greatest interest was to help abortion-minded women change their mind carry to term and help them to do that, make it possible for them to do that, ease the burden, okay? The difficulty uh, right now, 
That was uh, 27, 28 years ago. But the difficulty now, this woman is explaining to me, who's the, a director of a, a CPC, I don't know if they really call them that anymore. They have different ways of characterizing it, but she's having a hard time getting help, support, encouragement, financial aid from the local church community. And I don't mean just from the individual people, but the local churches. In other words, here are local churches that are organized religious groups, Christian groups, that have a commitment to a biblical worldview, which entails, I'm not even going to say arguably, I'm not going to say you could make a case for, I'm saying the biblical worldview entails the idea that abortion takes the life of an innocent human being without proper justification. Therefore, from God's perspective, it's murder, violation of, what, the Sixth Commandment. Okay, now I've made this case before, so I'm I'm not going to give any, you know, in a certain sense, uh, wiggle room to people who say they're Christians and they believe in the Bible, but they're not sure that abortion is wrong. All you have to do is go to Luke chapter 2, and there is John the Baptist in the third trimester, leaping with joy and filled with—I'm sorry, second end of the second trimester, leaping with joy, filled with the Holy Spirit, because he is in the presence of Jesus, who is a zygote at that particular point. There is no question from the narrative there that those in the womb, John and Jesus, were then the very same people in the womb that they were when they were out of the womb. Thus, if you were to take their lives at that time, if either uh, Mary for Jesus or um, Elizabeth for John would have had an abortion or a miscarriage even, the one that would have died would have been Jesus himself or John himself not a future Jesus or a possible Jesus or a theoretical Jesus or a partial Jesus, John, whatever, but th- those ones themselves. Because the fact is, you were the same one that was in your mother's womb before you were born. That was you. Okay? And uh, that it's just—it's— You know, I realize people push back on this, but it strikes me as so obvious, especially from a biblical perspective, given the text I offered. Nevertheless, the problem isn't right now that the Church is being um, petitioned to help the CPC, the, the center that helps women carry to term instead of being tempted to take the life of their children. It's not that they don't, they don't, they're not pro life. I'm presuming they are. The problem is they're not willing to support in some way financially the pro-life enterprise in their community. And, she told me, there is a reason they give why they don't do this. Now, there's a lot of reasons people might give, but I just want to speak to this particular reason. And the reason is we don't want to get—what do you think? We don't want to get political. We don't want to get political. Why would they say that? Well, abortion is a political issue. 
Um, yeah. Well, we don't get involved in politics. Really? What do you teach your church? Oh, we teach in the Bible. Hmm. Okay. So is there a role that the local church has to do good in the community? Do you feed the poor? Of course we feed the poor. Wait, the government feeds the poor, too. It's called food stamps. Why isn't, um, like, feeding the poor participating in something that's political? There, I mean, the issue of the sta- status of the poor is one of the most massive political issues we're facing today. There are all kinds of policy concerns that relate to feeding the poor or helping the poor, whether it's uh, housing issues, uh, government-supported or uh, uh, abetted housing, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, um, or food stamps or all kinds of aid to dependent children, all kinds of programs. So wh- why why would we get involved in something that's political? Well, because the Bible says, okay, it does, and I'm all for that. But your refusal to be involved or your discomfort from being involved in helping women who choose to carry to term um, is because you don't—it's a political issue. So what is the reason for the inconsistency? Well, you know, now I'm reflecting. It's easy to brush it off as, well, that's political, but that can't be the reason. That can't be the real reason, because there are all kinds of things, just like I said, helping the poor in the community. That That is a political issue because there are policy um, elements that relate to the poor. There's all kinds of government programs, etc. So why are we coming alongside? Because, well, that's what we ought to do. Well, yes. Let me ask you this. Is the... Would you say that the Declaration of Independence is a political document? Yeah, of course. No, duh. Do you also realize that it's a religious document? A theological document? What do you mean? Because the justification for the American Revolution was based on theological notions. Does this sound familiar? We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that each is endowed by his Creator with certain unalienable rights, that of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Which, as it turns out, the argument goes in that document, these rights given by God have been denied citizens of the colonies, justifying those citizens going to war against England and King George. Now, whether you agree with the justification or not, uh, that's not the issue. The issue is there was no distinction for these people, the colonists, who were largely Christians. Actually, they're largely Reformed Christians, Calvinists, with making a theological case regarding a political issue and laying their lives down as the price they were willing to pay for their theology to influence their politics. The entire American Revolution was based on theological notions. 
Okay. Uh, what else was based on theological notions? Abolition. In both the United Kingdom and also in the United States, slavery was abolished because Christ, largely Christians, based on biblical sentiments and understanding, campaigned against it and won finally. They didn't say, well, we're not going to get involved in the slavery thing. Why not? Well, that's political. That's politics. We don't get involved. Where did this come from? Do you understand what happens to the church? I, I, by the way, I, I get that there could be abuses of this, but I just want you to forget about the abuses and the politics and all that for just a moment. I want you to think about this. Citizens of the kingdom God's kingdom, are also citizens of man's kingdom, and part of being a citizen of God's kingdom is the obligation we have to have a salutary effect on man's kingdom. That's why we help the poor. And any way we can do that is legitimate. It's not just legitimate, it is obligatory. When Christians supported slavery instead of campaigning against it, they were not just wrong, mistaken, they were immoral. They were an offense to God. And God is not going to be satisfied with the complaint by those Christians, well, that's politics, so we couldn't and wouldn't do anything about it. that It's irrelevant if you characterize it as politics. It's not mere politics. It isn't just poli partisan policy. This, these are things that are tied to deep human need and, and profound morality, based on a Christian understanding of what it means to be human. Both of them are the same. In fact, the kinds of arguments that are, are pro, that thoughtful pro-lifers make now, and I think of Scott Klusendorf because he's, he's so effective at what he does, Life Training Institute, is to capitalize on the kinds of arguments that Lincoln made against Douglas regarding racism to show that abortion falls in the same category. And the kinds of arguments that Douglas made against Lincoln are the same kind of arguments that pro-choice people or pro-abortion people, if you will, are making against pro-lifers. They're the same arguments because it's the same kind of thing. So here's my question of the pastors who say we don't want to get political by entering into the fray in any sense regarding abortion. If you were a pastor in 1860 in the United States of America, would you have opposed publicly and as a pastor, given your role as a leader of your congregation, would you have opposed slavery? Of course you would have. And to say, well, I wouldn't have opposed it because that would be getting political you, you, of course, you realize how foolish that sounds. That's nonsense. Yet the same people make the same kind of argument or give the same kind of excuse that they would never give regarding slavery to abortion, involvement with that issue. 
And incidentally, just to compare the two, in slavery, people are enslaved. In abortion, people are killed. And uh, in massive numbers, I mean, the number of people that were slaved, enslaved in the United States is is a is a uh, you know shrinks in significance to the number it's a paltry number by comparison to the number of children that have been killed just since Roe v Wade so it's almost 50 years right i did the math cuz for the street smarts the book that's coming out in june i did the math i've talked about it here before one number it's easy to remember Actually, two, I'll say. There are more children killed every single day, on average, since Roe v. Wade to the present moment through abortion than died on 9-11, 2,977. Almost 3,000 people, 9-11. We've had thousands and thousands of 9-11 days back-to-back with abortion. Or more died through abortion than every person, every civilian, every soldier of every country that fought in the Second World War. More through abortion just in the United States of America through Roe versus Wade, at least on some characterizations. That number is roughly 60 million. Some people put it a little lower. Some historians put it higher. It's harder to really tie down the exact number of people who died in the Second World War. But we're in the same ballpark. And so this is something that pastors don't want to weigh in on because of politics? Really? Is that going to wash with God? So anyway, it's frustrating to hear that. Uh, there's another problem. This is more of a practical one, not a moral one. What isn't political nowadays? Pastors, do you speak about marriage? Guess what? That's political. Do you speak about child rearing? That's political, especially with all the gender dysphoria stuff that's going on and the schools' complicity in that, public schools with regards to parents and not telling parents. That's child rearing. That's political. I mentioned the poor. That's political. Uh, what else? Sexuality. Sexuality. Is that something that we as Christians have something to speak to from God's word? Oh, wait, that's politics. Everything is political now. Everything meaningful is political. Even that Jesus is the only way of salvation, that's political. Because it's not properly tolerant, diverse, etc., etc. So the minute we say that we are not going to be involved in something because it's political— we are basically telling the other side, all you have to do is move into that area and make it political, and we move out. We wave the white flag, and we give it to you. It's yours. And then what do Christians have to say about life? What do we get to speak to? Oh, we can talk about whether in baptism you baptize Christians or you baptize children who haven't yet made a decision for Christ. Oh, we can talk about that. We can talk about the Eucharist. Is this just kind of a sophisticated metaphor? Is the body of Christ in some sense actually manifest there in the, uh, 
in the bread or the wine. We can talk about that. Government's not in that yet. We can talk about all these parochial, um, by comparison, I don't mean these are not theologically significant, but by comparison, these are all these parochial side issues that do not relate to living your life in the world on a day-to-day basis. And then that's what we're left with. And then you wonder why people are saying, why is Christianity relevant to anything? doesn't speak to anything. That's because all the things that it speaks to, that the, that the culture, that the world has co-opted for itself in a political way, we have let them have it. It's all yours. Take it away. We'll be silent. We won't get involved. We don't do politics. And then we wonder why the world is going to hell. And I'm using my words advisedly there. Okay? Shame on any pastor who dismisses speaking up for those whose blood, those innocents whose blood is being shed because they're not speaking up because, well, it's political. We need to be helping these folk who are there on the lines, boots on the ground, helping women carry to term and keep their babies, adopt their babies out, whatever. They're not killing their babies. And, and what, really, what, what moral issue is more weighty than right now? Than that issue. And now some of you are thinking, well, wait a minute, Roe versus Wade, that got knocked down. Yeah, that got knocked down. Okay, and therefore what? The battle's over? No, the battle's just beginning in a certain sense. All Roe v. Wade said is that states don't have, the citizens don't have a constitutional right to kill their unborn children. That's all it said. Individual states then can restrict, right? But you know what's happened is the whole field has been galvanized now. And those who are pro-choice, pro-abortion, have, you know, doubled down. Look at the state of California. Now you can get a partial birth abortion in the state of California, is my understanding. It's like they just, we're locking it down. In fact, there's ads all over the country that the governor has put up inviting women who want to have abortion, abortions, who live in states that don't allow abortions to be formed, to come to California. Where are the refuge? Okay. So um, has this, in a certain sense, heated everything up? Absolutely. And this more the reason. We need to do what we're able to to support those enterprises and those organizations that are providing for the health and well-being of mothers and babies in problematic pregnancies. Doesn't mean everybody's got to be a pro-choice, I'm sorry, pro-life fanatic, and that's not what I'm saying. But to dismiss our involvement, excuse me, our involvement, especially a local church, because it's political, this is nonsense. That is shameful. Okay, call's coming up here at Stand to Reason. Stay with us. What if I'm wrong? Have you ever asked yourself that question? 
There are times when we feel confident about our convictions, but there are other times, if we're being honest, when we encounter doubts that leave us wondering if we got it all wrong. This has caused many to deconstruct their faith. If you can't give a why to your faith, you won't be able to give a why not to your doubts. In other words, if you don't have a Christianity anchored in what's true, you will always be at the mercy of your doubts. That's why we're excited to announce this year's Reality Conference. Our theme is Seek and You Will Find. We will equip students to navigate their doubts by seeking answers to their toughest questions. Because when you seek answers, you find truth. It's time to examine the foundations of our faith because a strong faith requires a strong foundation. Join us at one of this year's Reality Student Apologetics Conferences. For more information, visit realityapologetics.com. As a high school teacher, I always had a red pen close at hand. When I wasn't in front of my students teaching a lesson, you could find me assessing assignments, grading essays, and evaluating exams. The red pen played a crucial role in the educational development of my students. With it, I questioned their assumptions, exposed their errors, and challenged them to think critically. You see, a good teacher doesn't merely tell his students that they're wrong. A good teacher shows his students why they're wrong so they don't make the same mistakes twice. He corrects because he cares. Last year, I was scrolling through social media, and frankly, I was discouraged at all the bad thinking that undergirded much of what I was reading. Then it hit me. What if someone applied the red pen to this flawed thinking? And Red Pen Logic with Mr. B was born. In the last few months, Red Pen Logic has grown in popularity. Through our engaging and shareable educational graphics and videos, we are helping people, especially young people, assess bad thinking by using good thinking. And we have a lot of fun in the process. So here's your homework assignment. Like the Red Pen Logic Facebook page so you don't miss our next graphic. And subscribe at the Red Pen Logic YouTube channel so you don't miss a single video. Class dismissed. Some former evangelical Christians who have deconstructed their faith, are claiming that Christ's crucifixion was child sacrifice. Is that true? We'll find out in the most recent episode of my podcast, Thinking Out Loud with Alan Schliemann. Look for it on iTunes, your favorite podcast app, or at the top of the homepage at str.org. All right, friends, Greg Kogel here, Stand to Reason. And uh, let's just jump in. we got a bunch of callers on board here. Going to Lauren first in Ironton, Ohio. Ironton, Ohio. Are there, like, uh, iron mines there somewhere in Ohio, Lauren? Yeah, there's a pig iron. <laughs> oh, no kidding. Huh. Yeah. All right. There we go. What's on your mind today, Lauren? Um, so I was just wondering if you had any... Um logic or advice. Um, I have tons of scripture, of course, about talking to someone about the use of the Passion Translation um, Bible, Yeah. Um, specifically a person who is already, ha- has already accepted the uh, NAR doctrine, like um, the New Apostolic Reformation right, doctrine, right, prophets, right. apostles, and things like that. Sure. Um, just wondering if you had any... Uh, just any logic, any 
Okay, the difficulty, yeah, combating that. Uh, Lauren, the difficulty for me is I am not familiar with the Passion Translation. Now, during the break, oh, okay. Amy and I, we just kind of, she's, you know, banging away <laughs> online, looking things up. Sure. And uh, Mike Winger, who's a, a good friend of Stand to Reason, he just lives down the block, you know, uh, he's a, yeah. a, a podcaster, YouTuber, whatever, a BibleThinker.org. Bible I'm actually thinker. really familiar with Mike Winger, okay. and um, I've been viewing, I know he did um, a whole passion project, and so I've been huh. uh, viewing some of those the past couple of days about it. Right, so, good. Yeah, he's, so yeah. he's had Craig Blomberg <laughs> on, he's had Craig Blomberg on, he's had Tremper Longman on, he's t- had uh, Daryl Bach on, and these are all notable theologians speaking about it. Now, yeah. I am completely out of the loop, though of what the translation problem is there. And maybe if you had, uh, you could bring me, if you could give me a specific question about something in the translation that troubles you, maybe I could speak to that. But uh, I I just am not familiar with what the debate is about. Sure. Um, Well, I not anything specific. I have read some of it for myself, and there's also... um, a chapter devoted to it in the book called Counterfeit Kingdom, Chapter 7. Uh-huh. It pulls out some of the different scriptures and things where he adds um, words to the scripture to completely change the doctrine. It also lends to, um, it also lends to uh, this whole um, apostolic prophet right, level of right. spirituality um, hierarchy type thing within Correct. the church. Um, so, but, um, nothing specific, the whole translation is troublesome. He says that it is based on the, um, Aramaic, original Aramaic text. (laughs) Okay. Oh, that's kind of interesting. The original Aramaic text. Aramaic. Okay. So uh, just for clarification for people listening who are not familiar, Aramaic was the language spoken by the people, the standard language that's spoken by the people um, in that that lived in Israel at the time, you know, in that part of the world, Aramaic. Now, the trade language was Greek. They also spoke Hebrew, but the the um, but the, the local dialect, if you was will, was Aramaic. And every once in a while, you see Aramaisms that show up in the Gospels. Now. Just from what you said, I think the mentality is we are trying to get back to the real words of Jesus. We don't have the real words of Jesus because Jesus didn't speak in Greek. These are tr- these are these are uh, translations, in a sense, of the real words of Jesus into Greek, and so we can kind of in a linguistic way, backwards engineer it to get back to the Aramaic and get to the real deal. And it turns out, probably on their view, the real deal, the words that Jesus spoke, give a different impression of what the truth about God is than what we get from the Greek. Am I tracking with you right? Yes, yes. That's um, that's what he says they're trying, that he's trying to do. He He claims that Christ visited him touched him on the forehead and breathed, um, giving him all these new new revelations. Oh, there you go. And these downloads for Christians today that 
that early Christians would have had, but now are lost. Okay, um, you know, I'm just, I'm already, my blood pressure's going up. You've said a whole bunch of stuff. (laughs) That early Christians would have had, but that's now lost. This is the same kind of argument that the Mormons make, the LDS Church, all right, uh, that the early gospel was lost. Okay, what is our evidence that the early Gospels were lost. This is a question. What are, what's our, what is our reason to believe that what matters is what Jesus' exact Aramaic words were, which we don't have, incidentally? And it's not even clear that we have his exact words translated, in, I'm thinking in all cases, translated even into Greek, because the apostles summarized lots of things. And this is why you have variations between Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John of the same event. You have characterizations that they've given, and people are thinking, oh my goodness, well, what is the Word of God? And the answer is, the Word of God is what the apostles wrote down. That's, that is our—the Scriptures, the writings, all graphe is God-breathed. And so now you got somebody coming along that's saying God is breathing through him. Mm-hmm. And now I see the connection with the New Apostolic Reformation. Yeah. And whenever you have God speaking again authoritatively to other people, you're going to have problems. And, you know, not to, to bang this drum again, but— this concept is not foreign at all to most evangelicals, because most evangelicals have God speaking to them all the time to listen to the way they talk. Well, God told me this, God told me the other thing, and I sat down, and here's what God said, and I said this to God, and God said this to me, and boom, 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 boom. What you have is God revealing personal messages to individual Christians. Now, some want to say, well, wait a minute, that's not that's not Bible stuff. Well, it doesn't matter what whether I—in I, I, other words, it's not personal revelation for the whole Church. Regardless, if God is speaking, it is still God speaking. It has the same authority as Scripture, because God's Word is God's Word, even though the application of God's Word in those cases is limited. Well, you're a very small step away from the kind of thing you just described, God tapping somebody on the forehead and breathing into him, these new revelations that allegedly were part of the early church and are now, uh, and are now lost. I mean, this is, the, this is um, a textbook. This is just textbook cult stuff. Okay. I, I, I'm just telling you, I mean, I, I, had, I know nothing about the Passion Bible except for this right. call. This is the first exposure I have. But when you tell me all the particulars, I say, man, have we been down this road before? Oh, yeah. my <laughs> goodness. Yeah. Jehovah's Witnesses, yeah. Uh, Mary, Mary Baker Eddy, right? Christian yeah. scientists, Joseph Smith, Mormons, mm-hmm. NAR, and, 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 of course, the first three are clearly outside of classical Christianity, you know, that's why they call them cults. They don't use that language anymore. But the outside, but you also have the same thing now going in this bizarre things going on inside the broader Christian community like NAR. And, um, and, and I'm 50 years a Christian. I've seen these things happen over and over and over again cause all yeah. kinds of problems. They used to have the Kansas City prophets. Remember those guys? And you got all these things going on, but it all, all of them have this common denominator. God told me. I got this special revelation from God. And what happens characteristically, whenever there's Bible plus something else, 
Bible plus the Jeho- uh, the 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 Joseph Smith Bible uh, plus Mary Baker Eddy Bible plus the NAR Bible plus the prophets Bible plus the teaching magisterium of the church Bible plus anything. Here's what happens: the Bible gets tossed in the back seat, right. and all those other things go front and center. That's my observation after 50 years of dealing with these kinds of things. And yeah. it, it, it's, it's, it's almost as if, man, we're just tired of that old stuff. The Bible, all that stuff been around for so long. Oh, man, all I got is the book. So now we got to juice it up a little bit. We got to gussy it up a little bit. And uh, yeah. what do we get? We get? We get all kinds of foolishness and nonsense and all kinds of trouble. Because we weren't satisfied with what God has already given us, right? Remember the uh, Laughing yes. Revival? Remember the? Uh, I, I don't I know. Do if not. You, okay, well, this goes back to the two th- early mid two thousands, maybe maybe even the late yeah some, but the whole Laughing Revival thing, you know, it's like Holy Spirit descends and everybody starts laughing and um, and maybe and and rolling around and making animal sounds and uh, this is. Uh, there were different places in the country where this was going on, and there was something that that um, I thought was really interesting that I read in Timothy, because I would tell people, try to deal with the, the excesses, but I said, you know, bare minimum, you can just ignore it. What? Yeah. Bite your tongue. You know, why did you say that? Maybe this is the Holy Spirit. It's because of what Paul told Timothy in the last thing that Paul ever wrote to anybody in Second Timothy chapter 3. And he said— to Timothy, that here's a world's in the beginning of chapter three, your world's going this crazy way. All right. You, Timothy, however, continue in the things you have learned and have become convinced of. And so he points Timothy not to the future in some kind of future movement of the Holy Spirit that's going to set everything right, the latter rain or anything like that. He points him to the past. That which has already been revealed. And that's where our focus should be. And incidentally, just a couple verses later, is where we have this magnificent passage that we just made reference to. All Scripture, all graphe, is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, reproof, for training, correction, etc., etc. That's right there in that same chapter. And so you see Paul himself driving us back to the foundational stuff that we find in Scripture. Uh, But all of these movements have as a characterization, a characteristic, a an additional source of revelation that ends up contradicting or contravening the word that has already been revealed. That's the issue. Yeah, and, uh, well, I think you gave me a great um, question, just asking what evidence, since they've made a claim, right, this Brian Simmons guy, that evidence has been lost, he kind of holds the duty to um, the burden of proof to prove that claim. What evidence mm-hmm. do you have that this has been lost? Yeah, um, I think you gave me a really great question to pass along. Well, that's ask. good. So, that's good. Yeah, the the irony you. is, it's going to be really hard to answer because of the nature of the issue. If there is True. a whole bunch of stuff that has actually been lost, how do you know with something that you don't know of has been lost? Right. You know, there was a—I'm trying to think of an illustration, but you only know it's been lost if you know it was there, and now it's no longer there. You know, I had this money on my dresser, and now it's gone. 
Well, you know it's gone because you knew it was there. You had placed it there or you saw it there or whatever. But if you if you don't have this prior information in some sense there, you can't say that it's been lost. Right. Um, now, maybe there have been things that are lost for the sake of discussion, but you're not mm-hmm. in a position to say, and now I found them. Because right. how is it that we know that the things you found are the things that were legitimately part of the canon that has been lost? But, you know, it's it's not just that. Um, J. Warner Wallace, in his book, Mere, um, I almost said Mere Christianity, Cold Case Christianity, does a great job in looking at how, he, he calls it the um, chain of, uh, chain of uh, what, is it, what do they call it, chain of evidence, not chain of evidence, uh, is that what they call it? It's not the chain of evidence. But when, when, when cops arrest a guy and they got physical evidence, they got to check this physical evidence in. And then the mm-hmm. guy writes and keeps a chain of custody. That, then th- there turns out to be a kind of a, for years, a paper trail regarding this thing that's been turned in that has certain marks on it that incriminates a particular individual that's evidence for the crime. And so there's a whole paper trail that you follow to demonstrate that this stuff hasn't been lost or hasn't shown up. Somebody hasn't planted it there ex post facto. Okay. Right. I'm, I'm, I'm going to, Jim's going to give me, he's going to give me a hard time because I, I don't remember the terminology here, but what he does is he looks, he shows how this has happened in the early church. So you have the apostolic witness that we have in the Greek uh, New Testament evidences that we have now, okay? But we don't just have these things that are really copies of things that go back to 3rd or 4th century, and we don't have, like, the earliest manuscripts, but we do have the writings of the church fathers. So we have Polycarp, and we have Ignatius, and we have... um, uh, you know, my mind's going blank on some of these fathers, but basically you can check tr- the disciples of John, John the Baptist, and the disciples mm-hmm. of the disciples of John the Baptist, and the disciples of them. And so you have these generation after generation after generation, and this is what he chronicles in his book, of these biblical—they're uh, not biblical writers, they're disciples of the biblical writers, but they are citing the writings of the biblical writers— and the teachings of the biblical writers, generation after generation after generation after generation. So we know that these teachings go back to the very beginning because all of the generations of disciples of the apostles, and it's not just John, it's also Peter, it's also Paul, the mm-hmm. generations, of, they also wrote about what they were taught. So we have these ways of cross-referencing the information that we find in the Greek New Testament to show that it has not been changed. It has not yeah. been lost. The doctrines are the doctrines. Yeah. So anyway, this, uh, this author of this translation, he doesn't have, he doesn't have that. There's no original to go back to because there's no such thing as a complete Aramaic text. Hmm. So, um, there's yeah. really, I mean, I didn't even know no there way. were a lot of Aramaic texts around, you know, uh, I, I no, there, there aren't. <laughs> so, so, you know, so the, what's wrong with the Greek? The, the yeah, Greek I, was good enough for the people who were followers of Jesus, trained by Jesus personally to write in for goodness sake. Right. If John wrote in Greek, 
if uh, if if Mark wrote in Greek, if Matthew wrote in Greek, it doesn't matter that they first heard it in Aramaic from Jesus' lips. They are copying down their understanding of what Jesus said and did, and they're communicating it in Greek. What's wrong with that? Did, the, did Matthew get it wrong? Did Mark get it wrong? Did John get it wrong? Did Luke get it wrong? And if they got it wrong, why should we believe somebody 2,000 years later is going to have the wherewithal, just on a practical note here, to get it right, to correct what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John got wrong? Where does that come from? And I'll tell you where it's coming from. The appeal is to the supernatural source. God told me. Right. Right. Now what? What are you going to do with that? You can't fight it, right? Right. The only thing uh, the only yeah. thing I could say is says who? Says you? Yeah. Sorry, I don't buy it. I I'm going to yeah. trust Matthew, Mark, Luke and John that they really didn't lose much from Aramaic to the Greek that they wrote in. They seem yeah. to be pretty satisfied that the Greek communicated what they wanted to communicate about Jesus. And okay. if they were satisfied, I'm going to be satisfied. Make sense? Thank you. Yes, absolutely. Thank well, you very much. You gave me some great talking points. Well, super, Lauren. And uh, and I'm notice just by admission, you know, I don't know anything about the passion, but I see yeah. the pattern. Yeah. And you you see the problems with the kinds of claims that are being made, and the pattern that's being followed. Okay. Absolutely. Again, why should I trust this guy knows better than Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, or whoever? Early on, some people might dispute the authorship. Nevertheless, this is the earliest, the most primitive documents we have in our possession, and they're in Greek. Why should we think that this guy 2,000 years later got it right and they got it wrong? Yeah. There you go. Absolutely. All right, Lauren. Thank you. In Ironton. Yes. (laughs) God bless you, you. dear. Okay, bye-bye now. God bless you. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. All right, let's go to break. And after that, more calls on Stand to Reason. Friends, if you like this broadcast, I know you'll love Hashtag STRask. It's our shorter 20-minute podcast where I am paired with the wonderful Amy Hall, and together we answer the questions you send us on Twitter. Hashtag STRask is released twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays, and it's only about 20 minutes long, so it's perfect to listen to on your morning jog or while driving around running errands or cleaning your garage or just plain loafing at home. Amy and I tackle your questions on theology and ethics and culture and lots more, offering our insight on the questions you're asking or the challenges you face. You can listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your own shows. Just remember, send us your questions on Twitter using the name of the podcast, hashtag STRask. That's hashtag STRask. Have you ever wondered how Stand to Reason is able to produce fresh, accessible content each week? We rely on generous donors so that we can provide you with the tools and tactics you need to be an effective ambassador for Christ. If you've benefited from this podcast or any of our donor-provided resources, including our apps, blog posts, articles, and short videos, consider making a financial contribution to Stand to Reason today. Just visit str.org donate to show your financial support. It has been an honor providing you with a host of free resources for more than 27 years to help you give voice to the Christian worldview. Help us continue by making a financial gift today at str.org donate.
right, friends, I've just uh, blown off a lot of steam during the break about the problem that surfaced through the last caller and Lauren's call. Oh, my goodness. I mean, it it's... It's not that hard, friends. It's not that hard. Okay? There's the book. There's the Scripture. Lots of translations, and pretty much all the translations say pretty much the same thing, because they're working from the original manuscripts. I should original. I should say the original language, the manuscripts written in the original language, and they're translated. Now, as time changes, language changes. I don't mean the Greek is changing. I mean English changes. So, as John Warwick Montgomery said, I only use the King James Bible with people who are 350 years old or older. Everybody else, I use a more up-to-date translation. And the, it, the point is, of course, that English has changed, and the words that you read in English in the King James that were meaningful to the people then do not mean the same thing in English that they mean today. So, um, you know, you, if you're Shakespeare, right? Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou Romeo? Yeah, where is he? I've been looking all over. I can't find him. That's not what that means. It means, why are you Romeo? Remember, this is a conflict between two families, the Capulets and the oh, well, Montagues. And these two people fall in love, and they're from these warring families. And and it's like, why do you have to be of that family? Well, if if you understand Shakespearean language or the language of that era, then you can understand that. But if you're reading the King James Bible now, you got to get a dictionary out to translate from the King James English to modern-day English, and that's what new translations do. They update the translation, but they're still working for the same core material, by and large. There's some exceptions to that, but for the most part. But so you have that, all these translations that are noble, good translations, if they're working hard to say what the Greek text says in language that is appropriate for this era. Now, you also have paraphrases. Well, you're going to lose a lot there because it's paraphrased. Uh, Don't use a paraphrase to study. But um, then there are translations like the New Era translations that are twisted and distorted because a theology is being read into the translation. That's the Jehovah's Witness translation. And apparently that's what's happening with the Passion. (sighs) Okay, deep breath. And in Santa Clara, Matthew, welcome to Stand to Reason. Hi, Greg. How are you? Hey, I'm uh, trying to calm down. (laughs) (laughs) I can understand why. Yeah. Um, I have uh, actually kind of a couple of questions. One's a little shorter and the other stems from how I've been thinking about it. Okay. Um, My first question um starts with I visited a church um and the pastor during his sermon said that the fact that Jesus was not Joseph's son, um, referencing the virgin birth, makes him not a son of Adam and therefore he could live a sinless life as the son of God. And I guess the the question I had from hearing that from that pastor, um was doesn't that contradict 
um, Son of Man as an important part of Jesus's incarnate nature and his ability to atone for human yeah. um, sinfulness. Yeah, that that's a, a really fair question. A, a, just, a distinction needs to be made, though. When Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man, which is his favorite characterization, self-characterization, um, he wasn't just referring to his, his humanity. He was identifying with the divine figure in the book of Daniel, I think Daniel chapter 7 or something like that. So the Son of Man language was actually in the, in the parlance of, of the people at the time, the biblically literate people, was actually a claim to divinity. I'm just saying that as an aside. But the language, Son of Man language, even set aside, we hold, and it's our understanding, that Jesus was a true human being, okay, yet without sin. And that raises the question, how could he be a true human being and without sin, um, not even original sin, yet the rest of us are true human beings with original sin, okay? And this is where the response of your pastor comes in. So I just want to qualify something. Uh, we know Jesus is a true human being. This is classical Christian theology, and it, and and there's no reason from anything that we read in the record about Jesus to think of him any differently, a true human being. We also know that he is without sin, that there is no darkness in him, there is no sin, you know, etc. So he is a sinless human being. Then it raises the question, how can this be? And now we're at the point of speculation. Now we think, gee, I don't know, how could that be? Well, here's something unique about Jesus. Jesus did not have a human father. He had a human mother, that makes him truly human, but he didn't have a human father. That's part of the miracle. So maybe, notice the stress on maybe, maybe he is sinless in virtue of the fact that he did not have a human father. And maybe the sin nature is passed down through the father and not through the mother. Maybe. I don't know, to be honest with you. This is speculative. What we do know textually is that Jesus was a true human being without sin. That's what we know. How that could be is speculative, and maybe the speculation your, your pastor offered is a good one, but it is a speculation. So the, the idea that Jesus is a true human being and sinless, both biblical truths, is not in question simply because we doubt the speculative explanation for how that could be so. Does that make sense? I see. So the speculation, yeah, I don't know, maybe he's wrong, maybe he's right, but he's not wrong about the fact that Jesus is a true human being, if that's what he holds, and he's not wrong about the fact that Jesus is without sin. There's no guilt in Jesus. Right. Okay. Right. And uh, so, so that's where we camp in terms of our certitude, and then how that works, this is where we're in speculation. The difficulty is sometimes people will speak speculatively as if it's gospel, and then, right. and then that could create some problems. <laughs> so uh, I don't know the answer to that. 
I think the speculation that he didn't have a human father, which accounts for his sinlessness, maybe is as good as any, but he doesn't have to have a human father to be a human being. Now, by the way, we know that now just with cloning. You could have a cloned, right. hum- a cloned human being. Petri dish clone, real human being, no human father. So that, especially with what we know about technology here, that shouldn't create a, in a certain sense, a theological problem for us. Although it does raise a question for the explanation, at least one explanation, and that is if you clone, hmm, hmm, if if you use a if you uh, if you if you do, um, I'm trying to think of the technical language here. You know that where you you can clone from an egg and create a new human being, then there's no father there. Does that mean there's no sin, sin nature? I don't know. You know, I don't know about that. But the fact is, cloning does show you could have a human being without a human father. And I guarantee you that human being, in that case, the clone, they're still naughty. But Jesus wasn't. The Son of God. All right. Thank you for the call, Matthew. Music caught me by surprise, so show's over this hour. Great Cocoa here for Standard Reason. Give them heaven. Bye-bye now.